you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. There is a tradition in certain homes in England, northern England mainly, of keeping a skull in a house or else poltergeist phenomena will ensue. Generally these are called screaming skulls, although only a small number are reputed to make any sound whatsoever. What are these screaming skulls? The severed head appears to have been a potent symbol in ages past. The head was long seen as the place where the soul resided and the seat of an individual's power, as far back as the Stone Age times. Among the Vikings, the world was made from the skull of the ancient giant Ymir. There was also the wise god Mimir, sent to a group of gods called the Vanir, and murdered by them in a fit of rage. Then they seized Mimir and beheaded him, and sent the head to the Aesir. Odin took it and embalmed it with herbs so it would not rot and spoke charms over it, giving it magic power so that it would answer him and tell him many occult things. Nowhere was the severed head so potent a symbol as among the Celts. Celtic warriors were well known for keeping the heads of conquered enemies. Skulls decorated the Celtic fortresses, and it was believed that lines of severed heads impaled on spikes were displayed. Sculptures have been found bearing niches thought thought to be used to display heads. Two of these have been found in France, the so-called Tarasque of Novez, found in southern France, and another called the Linsdorf Monster, found in Alsace-Lorraine. Any number of stoner metalheads have also been found. There has long been an association between severed heads and sacred wells or healing springs. The most famous Celtic tale of a severed head is the story of the mythical king Bran the Blessed whose head was buried under the White Hill in London, site of the, the site of the Tower of London. The tale had it that as long as Bran's head stayed where it was buried, no misfortune would befall Britain. The name Bran means raven, and the current story associated with the ravens of the Tower of London is almost identical to that of Bran's head, and is most likely derived from that ancient tale. The skull of the Arthurian knight Gawain was supposedly displayed in Dover Castle, according to Sir Thomas Mallory in La Morte d'Arthur. Gawain is also associated with another story of a severed head, that of the famous Green Knight, whose severed head talked to the knight and promised retribution for his beheading. So, as can be seen from the story of Bran, especially, there's, there's been an association between the head and protection. 
these associations might very well be the origins of a Screaming Skull. Interestingly, the Screaming Skull legend appears to be almost uniquely English. I've found one example from Wales, but dozens from England. One instance of a so-called Screaming Skull comes from Cornwall. It is, or rather was, located at Tremarrow Farm near Launceston. At one time, Tremarrow was home to the Piper Clan, who were allied to the Royalists during the English Civil War. The farm was destroyed by the Puritans during the war, and was rebuilt again by Sir Hugh Piper after the restoration of the, man the monarchy. Following this, there was a skull kept in the house. Whose skull it was, exactly, was up for debate. Hugh Piper claimed that it was the skull of a Puritan, according to historian Otho Peter writing in 1904. That his family might remember the head of his injured master, King Charles, which had been struck off on the scaffold. One version of the story of the Trey Marrow skull claimed that it was the skull of a man executed by King Charles II, which doesn't necessarily preclude the previous. And another claims more fancifully that it was the head of Oliver Cromwell himself. In any case, as Sabine Baringold says, In the farmhouse, in a niche, is preserved a human skull. Why it is there, no one knows. It has been several times buried, but, whenever buried, noises ensue which disturb the household, and the skull is disinterred and replaced in its niche. Formerly, it occupied the gable head. The monument to Sir Hugh Piper found in Launceston Parish Church bears the image of a skull. Arthur Venning claims that the skull was lost when the old farmhouse was torn down. It was later exhibited in London as Oliver Cromwell's skull, and later sold to a doctor from Peckham. At some point, it seems to have ended up back in Tremarrow, as here, it was buried by a member of the Dolls family, who, disliking its presence, had it buried, but thereupon ensued such an uproar, such mighty disturbances, that it was on the morrow dug up again and replaced in its recess. The Dolls later emigrated to Canada sometime around 1908, and they took the skull with them. In 2001, according to a local history website, the skull was returned to Launceston, and today occupies a special display case at the Lawrence House Museum in that town. Another skull connected with the English Civil War is that of Theophilus Broom. This man was buried in St. James Church in Chilton Canelow in Somerset, according to John Collinson's 1791 History and Antiquities of Somerset. Collinson says of the grave, There is a tradition in this parish that the person here interred requested that his head might be taken off before his burial and be preserved at the farmhouse near the church where a head, chopped fallen enough, is still shown, which the tenants of the house have often endeavored to commit to the bowels of the earth, but, as, but have as often been deterred by hard noises portentative of sad displeasure. And about twenty years since, which was perhaps the last attempt, the sexton, in digging a place for the skull's repository, broke the spade in two pieces. During the Civil War, the higher farm in that town was owned by either Broom or his sister. Initially, he was a royalist, but as time went on, he shifted his allegiance to the Puritans, as tradition has it, after witnessing some of the gruesome methods of execution practiced by his brothers-in-arms. 
It is said that Broom wished his head to be separated from his body and kept in the house, so that if royalists, angry at his defection, came looking for his body, they could not desecrate it by putting his head on a spike. J.M. Holland says that the skull was originally kept in a box above the main door to the farm. It is now kept in a cupboard inside the house. According to others, Broom asked after his death for his body to be cut into parts and buried in three different counties. It was formerly also used as a cup to drink beer out of. The current owner of the house, at least as of 1999, a Mr. Curtin, was doubtful of the fearsome reputation of Broom's skull, saying, I would be interested to hear where this screaming skull information came from. My family have lived here for 75 years, and he has always been a quiet and respected gentleman. His wife said of the skull, People expect me to be frightened, but I know that, provided he is not taken outside the house, he would never do me any harm. He doesn't like being handled too much. If he objects, he'd soon let us know, but as long as he is treated with respect, he never causes trouble. It has never been examined to see if it actually dates from the 17th century, as is thought. Calgarth Hall, on the shores of Lake Windermere, also in Cumbria, may or may not be home to two skulls. The skulls are supposedly those of Craster and Dorothy Cook, who were falsely accused of, fe of theft and executed by Judge Miles Philipson. Their farm demolished and the construction of Calgarth commenced. But Dorothy had laid a curse on the hall, saying that she and her husband would haunt the mansion for as long as it might stand. When work on Calgarth was completed, Mrs. Philipson discovered two skulls near the staircase. Since that time, many attempts have been made to get rid of the skulls, but they always return to that same spot near the stairs. William Armistead described the Calgarth skulls in 1891. For it is said that to what place soever they were taken, or however used, they were still presently seen again in their old dormitory, the window. As the report goes, they have been buried, burned, powdered, and dispersed in the winds and upon the lake several times to no purpose. It was said that the skulls would laugh maniacally whenever a misfortune had befallen the Philipsons, and eventually they lost Calgarth. Though popular legend seems to make the skulls phantoms, it appears that they were very much real and described by visitors to the hall on several occasions. Others stated that there was only one skull at Calgarth, and that one only partial. Supposedly, a Bishop Watson had the skulls walled up. The current whereabouts of the two skulls are unknown. Historical research throws another light on the matter. Though the Cook's Cottage did exist near the mansion, and there was a judge named Miles Philipson in a nearby village, there is no evidence that he was at all connected with the construction of Calgarth. Miles Philipson was a supporter of the Royalists during the English Civil War, and it is hypothesized that the entire story of the Skulls might have been fabricated by the Puritans. The misfortunes of the Philipson clan, it is said, were due as much to their support of the King as to the supernatural Skulls. The skull of St. Ambrose Barlow is kept in a niche off, in a niche off the stairway at Wardley Hall near Swinton in Greater Manchester. Barlow was one of a number of Catholics arrested on Easter Sunday of 1640 and tried and executed near Lancaster Castle or Manchester Cathedral, according to some, the next year. He was hanged, dismembered, quartered, and boiled in oil, 
and his head later displayed on a spike. His skull was soon afterwards taken by a cousin named Francis Downs and taken to Wardley Hall. A disproven legend had it that the skull was that of Roger Downs, seemingly quite a notorious character. A brother of the previously mentioned Francis, and a hanger-on at the court of Charles II after the Restoration. He supposedly killed a man in London, and upon his execution, his head was sent in a box to his sister at Wardley Hall. However, when Roger was exhumed from his grave in 1799, it was found that he, indeed, had a head. Whoever the skull might have belonged to, rumor has it that it had been walled up in the chapel, before being rediscovered by a man named Matthew Morton in 1745. At that time, it was said, it was better preserved, still furnished with a goodly set of teeth and having on it a good deal of auburn hair. Tradition has it that it was Morton who built the glass fronted niche on the stairway in which the skull currently rests. It was said that in years since, the skull had been torn in pieces, burnt, and otherwise destroyed, but even on the subsequent day, it is seen filling its wanted place. Yet it was always observed that sore vengeance lighted on its persecutors. One who hacked it into pieces was seized with such horrible torments in his limbs that it seemed as though he might be undergoing the same process. Sometimes, if only displaced, a fearful storm would arise, so loud and terrible that the very elements themselves seemed to become ministers of its wrath. This tradition didn't stop some thieves from stealing the skull in 1930. For what purpose wasn't exactly clear. Some newspaper articles of the day said it was someone testing the traditions associated with the removal of the skull from the house. At any rate, it was returned in 1931 and was thereafter examined at Manchester University. Here, it was declared that the skull was that of a man aged approximately 55 to 60. Ambrose Barla was 55. But interestingly, they seem to suggest the skull was actually older than 1641. While admitting it was unlikely, they noted it wasn't actually impossible the skull was that of Barlow, just unlikely. They couldn't find evidence of its having been impaled on a spike, as was that skull. However, a second examination at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London said that there was evidence of some sort of trauma to the base of the skull, which they said seemed consistent with being stuck on a spike, and that the head had apparently never been buried. Two skulls were formerly kept at Warbledon Priory in Sussex. Around 1820, a workman digging near the priory said he saw a toad emerge from a hole, and then, looking in the hole, he saw a severed head, nearly perfectly preserved. The head was buried in consecrated ground in the churchyard, but the next day, it was said, the head had exhumed itself and was found at the door of Warbledon Priory. It was for years kept in a basket in the rafters, and then was later taken down and set on a Bible on a table. One man attempted to take the skull with him when he moved away from Warbledon, but when he did, strange noises began in the house and the horses in the stables became agitated. On another occasion, all the beer in a local pub turned moldy when the landlord displayed the skull on the bar. With this, it became apparent it was a screaming skull and needed to be kept in the house. Where the second skull came from is a mystery. It was present by 1881, 
when Lewis John Jennings wrote an account of a visit to the Priory. The skulls are kept in a cupboard, one of them having been cut in half, while the other stares grimly out of its big hollow eyes, as skulls ought to do. One was dug up in the grounds, and is quite brown, I suppose with age, but I am no judge of skulls. Why are they kept in the house? I do not know. If I lived there, I should bury them, or make them a present to a friend. But they say you cannot get rid of these death's heads at Warbledon. Many tenants of the house have tried it, and have been obliged to go and bring the unwelcome furniture back again. The moment the skulls are removed, hideous noises are heard all over the place, and cause each particular hair of the listener to stand on end. The noises might be put up with patiently, but at the same time, the cattle sicken and die. The Sussex Archaeological Society said of the second skull that the tradition of the neighborhood is that the skull belonged to a man who murdered an owner of the house, and marks of blood are pointed out on the floor of the adjoining room where the murder is supposed to have been committed, and which no washing will remove. However, by 1905, the skulls had vanished when ghost hunter R. Thurston Hopkins visited the house. One turned up in a Brighton antique shop in 1923. The second skull was traced to another farmhouse in the nearby town of Dallington. The farmer in Dallington said that he once tried burying the skull, but returned it to the house when a windstorm began immediately upon doing so. Hopkins went back to the Priory in 1930 and said that by then, the inhabitants were completely unaware of the tradition of the skulls. An old farmhand on this occasion told him that the skulls had been sealed in the walls of the priory behind two grotesque corbel heads in the rear wall, which had come from the older priory building which stood on the site. Hello listeners, I'm Jaden McKell, and welcome to Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained spine-tingling supernatural stories, true crime, and riddles from the ancient world are all things to expect when you tune in to Straight Up Enigmas. Like the time we discussed the mysterious death of Alyssa Lamb, or share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis and shadow people. In one of our most recent episodes, I told the story of Debbie Kent, the sister of my dad's best friend from high school, who was abducted and murdered by serial killer Ted Bundy. Join us every Tuesday and dive into the world's weirdest riddles, unsolved cold cases, and ghostly encounters. You can find our Straight Up Strange episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. One of, the more, one of the most famous screaming skulls is that associated with Burton Agnes Hall, near Bridlington in Yorkshire. The skull, called Old Nance, is supposed to be that of Catherine Griffith, more often known as Anne, daughter of Sir Henry Griffith who built the currently standing house. Popular tradition, however, has it that it was Anne and her sisters who actually built the house. A short time after the hall was finished, Anne was attacked near the neighboring village of Harpham, on her deathbed, she told her sisters that her spirit would not be able to be quiet in its grave unless I, or a part of me at least, remain here in our home as long as it lasts. Her sisters made the promise so as to make Anne feel better 
but they really had no intention of going through with it, and buried her body wholly intact in the churchyard. After about a week, the house began to be plagued by a series of crashes and other noises, which kept the household awake and trembling every night. The local priests felt that the disturbances were due to the broken promise, and so Anne's body was exhumed. It was found that the body was not decayed at all, but that the head was completely defleshed and separated from it. The skull was taken and placed inside the house, whereupon the noises ceased. Since that time, various owners have attempted to bury Anne's skull, but, as R. Thurston Hopkins says, Whenever it has been removed, the ghostly knockings have been resumed, and no rest or peace enjoyed until it has been restored. A maid in the household supposedly once threw, threw the skull out a window, and it landed in a passing manure wagon. The horses pulling the wagon immediately froze in place, and would not move until the skull was retrieved from the manure pile and returned to the house. An identical story in circulation is in circulation regarding the supposed screaming skull at Flag Hall, near Chilmorton in Derbyshire. It was also at one point removed from the house by a member of the Boynton family, who later inherited the property, who buried it in the garden, whereupon the most dismal wailings and cries kept the house in a state of disquietude and alarm until it was again dug up and restored to its place in the hall. The skull was later walled up somewhere in the house so that it might never be removed again, likely in a bedroom supposed to be haunted by Anne's ghost, or over a doorway in an upstairs hallway. However, there seems to be no direct confirmation of a Catherine or Anne Griffith ever having existed at all, the only two children of Sir Henry being listed as Francis and Henry. In his thesis on British traditions connected with heads, David Clark theorizes that if the traditional story of the Burton Agnes skull is not true, it may have been some tradition of an older date connected with the Welsh origins of the Griffith family. Another famous skull, or fragment of a skull, is known as Dickey. Dickey was formerly kept at Tunstead Farm, near Chapel on Lafrith in Derbyshire. Habitation at, Tun at Tunstead Farm has been more or less constant since the Bronze Age, but the first reference to Dickey seems to be in 1809, in John Hutchinson's A Tour Through the High Peak, where he writes, Early in the present century, having heard a singular account of a human skull being preserved in a house at Tunstead, and which was said to be haunted, curiosity induced me to deviate a little, for the purpose of making some inquiries respecting these natural or supernatural appearances. That there are three parts of a human skull in the house is certain, and which I trace to have remained on the premises for near two centuries past, during all the revolutions of owners and tenants in that time. Adam Fox, who dwelt in the farm at the time Hutchinson visited, told him that he not only heard singular noises and observed very singular circumstances, but can produce fifty persons within the parish who have seen an apparition at this place. He has often found the doors opening to his hand. The servants have repeatedly been called up of a morning. Many good offices have been done by the apparition at different times, and, in fact, it is looked upon more as a guardian spirit than a terror to the family, never disturbing them, but in the case of an approaching death of a relation or neighbor, and showing its resentment only when spoken of with disrespect, or when its own awful memorial of mortality is removed. 
Twice within the memory of man, the skull has been taken from the premises. Once on building the present house on the site of the old one, and another time when it was buried in the chapel courtyard. But there was no peace, no rest. It must be replaced. The skull has always been said to be that of a female. But why it should have been baptized with a name belonging to the male sex seems somewhat anomalous. Still not more wonderful than many, if not all, of its very singular pranks and services. To enumerate all the particulars of the incalculably serviceable acts and deeds done by Dickie would form a wonder, but not a wonder past belief, for hundreds of inhabitants of the locality for miles around have full and firm faith in its mystical performances. How long it has been located to the present house is not exactly known. To whose body in the flesh it was a member are equally as mysterious, save that it is said but what has not been said about it that is pure that is not pure fiction? That one of the two co-heiresses residing here was murdered, and who declared in her dying moments that her bones should remain in the place forever. The identification of the skull as female has been more or less confirmed by various other writers, and also, in 1940, it was said that in an examination of the skull by a surgeon confirmed that it was at least that it was that of a woman at least 18 years of age. At some point, Dickie was buried in the churchyard, but caused an uproar in the house and was returned. At another, it was thrown into the Combs Reservoir, but it caused all the fish in the reservoir to die and was again returned to the house. And in 1863, the railway line between Whaley Bridge and Buxton had to be rerouted when a portion of the track passing closest to Dunstead Farm kept sinking into a swamp. Eventually, the line was rerouted away from the farm and then it did not sink. This portion be became known as Dickey's Bridge. More so than other skulls, Dickey seems to take an active role around the farm, causing not only misfortune when removed from the premises, but also functioning similarly to a folkloric household spirit, performing small helpful tasks around the homestead. He was also said at times to manifest in the form of a dog, which is an interesting form to take, given the symbolism of dogs as emblematic of protectors and protective spirits. Some claim the skull is that of Ned Dixon, a former inhabitant of the farm. Wounded in a battle in France in the late 1500s, he returned home to find that the place had been claimed by his cousin and his wife, who murdered Ned. Other variants of the story claim that the skull is that of a woman murdered by her sister, and yet others claim that it is that of a witch who once lived on the property. Dickey is no longer at the house, however, supposedly having been buried around 1977 by a woman who had bought the farmhouse. Probably the most famous of the skulls, though, is the one kept at Bettiscombe House in West Dorset. Tradition has it that in 1760 or 1770, a farmer moved into Bettiscombe, which had been vacant for quite some time, and discovered the house and the, the skull in the home. He threw the skull into a pool of water, and afterward, ghostly noises and events afflicted the house for two days. The farmer retrieved the skull then from the pond and returned it to the house. But the first written description of it was made by Anna, Anna Maria Pinney, wife of parliamentarian William Pinney, who in 1847 writes, Mrs. Groves of the farm politely took us over the hole, and on opening a long dark cupboard upstairs, said, not very mysteriously, as you know, ma'am, all about Bettiscombe, 
Of course you have heard of the skull of Bettiscombe House. And from the depths of the closet, she produced a white and perfect human skull. While this skull is kept here, no, no ghost will ever infest Bettiscombe House, said Mrs. G. A judge and Dorset historian named J.S. Oodle wrote in 1874, At a farmhouse in Dorsetshire at the present time is carefully preserved a human skull, which has been there for a time long antecedent to the present tenancy. The peculiar superstition attaching to it is that if it be brought out of the house, the house itself would rock to its foundation, while the person by whom such an act of desecration was committed would certainly die within the year. It is strangely suggestive of the power of this superstition that through many t changes of tenancy and furniture, this skull still holds its accustomed place unmoved and unre unremoved. Judge Oodle later wrote that it was his belief the skull was that of a slave brought to the house from the island of Nevis by John Penny, one of William's ancestors. The slave was known, perhaps none too creatively, as Old Bettiscombe. The story has been embellished in local tradition. A man named G.R. Smith elaborated on how the slave skull came to be kept in the house. The Negro slave became more and more unhappy with his lot, and before long, his health began to decline. And with a sense of foreboding, he made a plea that on his death his body should be returned to his native land for burial. He added a warning that, if his wish were, were to be ignored, then the house would have no peace. Not long after this, he died and was buried in the parish churchyard. Straight away, the residents of the manor became aware of a strange presence. With unaccountable ghostly happenings and terrible screams, putting fear into the hearts of some of the boldest among them. Desperate to find a reason for their troubles, someone remembered the dead servant's last request. Arrangements were made to have his body exhumed and brought back into the manor house, whereupon the disturbance ceased and things returned to normal once more. In the end, it was found that if the dead man's skull remained in a safe resting place in the house, the latter remained in peace. Interestingly, an extremely similar tale of a slave skull existed also at a nearby manor house, Friar Wadden House, near Weymouth. Michael Penny, who lived in Bettiscombe House as of 1982, believed that the tale of the slave was completely the invention of J.S. Oodle, and that though it has been more or less accepted as fact since then, it is untrue. Oodle himself apparently changed his mind by 1891, feeling that the skull was that of a woman. This is supported in by an examination made in 1963 by Professor Gilbert Causey. The skull is complete except for the mandible and a break on the left zygomatic arch. The whole bone structure is rather lightly made, and the muscle markings are not prominent. It is probably a female skull, aged between 25 and 30 years, probably nearer 30. I think all these quantitative data lead to just one conclusion, that this is a normal European skull, a bit smaller in its overall dimensions, but certainly not negroid. Causey could not determine a definitive age for the skull although he did note certain signs suggesting that it had been buried for quite some time before it was brought into the house. The brown, smooth surface of the skull is also consistent with having been submerged for some time in mineral water. Bettiscombe is at the foot of Sliding Hill, on the summit of which is an Iron Age earthwork known as Pilsden Pen. 
It is now usually believed the skull is that of a Celtic or even a prehistoric woman. For a long while, the Betascombe skull sat on a beam near the attic, and after that beam was removed, it was kept in a niche in the attic. It is now kept in a cardboard box near the chimney. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.